Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Classic Rock Podcast, and it's part two of our special where I've been in the company of Randy Buckman, who, on the eve of the release of his biopic titled simply Buckman, has been talking about his life in music. Now, when we left Randy Buckman at the end of part one, he'd played his last gig with the guests who at the legendary Fillmore East. And next on the agenda was Brave Belt, which had more of a country rock feel to it. And this, remember, was before the Eagles had ever appeared and laid claim to that particular genre. So, looking back now, what were his next set of career objectives? Well, going back at that period of time, I loved what was I loved what Neil did. When I left the Guess Who, I went back to Winnipeg. He came back, and Buffalo Springfield had broken up. And I said, I want to be the new Buffalo Springfield. He looked at me and laughed. Uh, I said, well, how about Poco? He said, well, yeah, all these bands are trying, and there's a movement going. Linda Ronstadt with the Stone Ponies, she's got a band together, that who became the Eagles. Uh, there's room for that on radio, but, but it's all about timing. So I did, I, Neil Young and I came up with the name Brave Belt. I had a pedal steel. I did country rock. I could not... I did not want to be a second-rate guess who. They replaced me with two guitar players. They had a momentum going at radio that I could not compete with, and I couldn't get a voice as good as Burton Cummings. And so they went ahead with Share the Land. They kept having their, their hits, and I didn't want to be a second-rate guess who. If I was going to be second-rate, I wanted to be a second-rate me. So I went and created this, my own kind of music, kind of country rock, which is what Neil did with Buffalo Springfield and a lot of his solo stuff. And, and it was a total bomb. But it, when I left the guess who... I was blackballed in Rolling Stone magazine, in Cream magazine, BAM, all those magazines, and nobody would work with me. I could not get a producer. I couldn't get a publisher. I couldn't get a record label. I went to my own brothers, the Backman brothers, said I want to start a band, and with Chad Allen, who had basically quit the Guess Who, and um, got some pedal steel guys and violin guys, and we're doing a country rock album and just keeping myself alive with music and trying something new. And it didn't work. And Neil got me a deal with Mo Austin at Reprise, which was his label. And Mo Austin was very nice, gave me a two-album deal. And after BTO 2, after Brave Belt 2, said, we can't keep you on anymore, can't give you any more money, so we're letting you go. We have a feeling you're going to break, but we, we, you've hit our bottom line, and, and you're gone. So I go to a friend of mine named Charlie Fatch, who says, change your name, because nobody knows what Brave Belt is. Put your name Bachman in there, because so, they know you wrote the songs in the Guess Who, and you might get some airplay. So... We come up with Bachman. I asked my friend Fred Turner to join the band, and we come Bachman Turner for maybe six months. And everybody thinks we're like Brewer and Shipley or Seals and Crofts, a guy with an acoustic guitar and a mandolin singing one toke over the line. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're getting booked in coffee houses. And we're showing, up, we're showing up and we're playing this heavy rock and roll because as Brave Belt, everyone's sitting down. And I'm used to playing music and having people dance, even at the high school dances back in Winnipeg. I'm used to people dancing to rock and roll. So we start to write heavier music, and Fred Turner's got a heavier Harley Davidson kind of voice, and we're copying Creedence Clearwater and Brown Sugar and Jumping Jack Flash and The Who, and it's more powerful rock and roll. And so we're leaving the country behind, and so we've got to change our name. And at, at a truck stop one night, and we're called Backman Turner, and people think we're like a folk band, and we're not. I see a magazine called Overdrive. It's a trucker's magazine. It has a is center the, Is this a, is this a, a Husky's truck stop? Yeah, a Husky's truck stop in Detroit, Windsor, the border, the border there. And um, it's got a centerfold. And I open a centerfold, and it's not a naked girl like Playboy. It's <laughs> inside of a guy's truck. And I'm with Fred Turner. I say, Freddie, look at this. Look at the inside of this guy's truck. He's got leopard skin on the ceiling. 
He's got an eight-track tape record, uh, eight-track tape player. Uh, he's got a little book stand. This guy reads a book when he's driving his semi. There's a little thing where you turn the page. These guys are reading novels when they're driving semi-trailers. And um, I said, that's a great name for an album, because then albums had names. You had the group name, and then albums had a name. And I said, it's a great album name. It describes our music. And he said, no, it describes our band. And, I, he's, and Charlie Fatcher said, get a name. Get something else besides Bachman Turner. And so I write down Bachman Turner Overdrive. I take the magazine. I buy the magazine. It's like a dollar and a quarter. I buy the magazine. I phone there the next day, and I talk to the editor. And I say, I'm Randy Bachman. I'm in a band called, uh, you, uh, and we want to use your name. We're called Bachman Turner. We want to use your name and put it after us. Can I use the name? He said, yeah, ours is a magazine. You're going to be a band. You could use the name Overdrive. And I said, can you put that in writing? And he said, yeah, send me a letter. So I sent him a letter, and I get a letter back saying we could use Overdrive. And I called Charlie Thatcher. I say, we are now Bachman Turner Overdrive. And he goes, the name's way too long. And I look at it, and I, there, I've written Bachman under it, Turner, and under that Overdrive. I said, well, how about BTO? And he goes, wow, that's it. Chicago then were called CTA, Chicago Transit Authority. Charlie Sills and Ash for CSNN. REO Speedwagon comes out there, REO, that, that's your short. E Electric Light Orchestra comes out there, ELO. And Charlie says, you've got everything. A big, long name like Electric Light Orchestra or REO Speedwagon. You've got Backman Turner Overdrive and you've got BTO. That'll be a logo. And so we go back to take our first album cover picture for Backman Turner Overdrive. And we're in a field in, in Vancouver. And Vancouver has no real fields. I mean, flat fields, like, like Winnipeg, where we're from the prairies, which are flatlands. So we're standing in a hill, and behind the hill are all skyscrapers and parts of Vancouver, but we're on a hill, and it looks like we're in the prairies because we're standing in about one, one yard lot of, of, of grass. And the photographer says to me, Brown kid, and he's trying to get sunlight on us, right? Sunlight's great when you're taking a picture outside. So he's good, trying to get me to move to the sun. He says, Randy, move over, back up, and I trip over something in the grass. And he says, well, Stand there. I said, I can't stand there. This giant wooden thing underneath the grass because prairie grass, when it's three feet high, it falls down when it rains and then it grows up again and it falls down. It's hard to move anything under the grass. So I say to Fred, my brother Tim, help me lift this wooden thing up and get it out of the way because we're in perfect sunlight here. So we lift up this thing. It's eight feet round and tall and it's a gigantic wooden gear. And the photographer goes, Wow, that's amazing. Fred steps back and looks at it and goes, Wow, that looks like an overdrive gear from a Ferrari. The photographer says, hold it up and stand in it, stand around it. That's the back of the first BTO album, this thing that we found in the grass. And so we take that, we make it smaller, we put it on the front, we make another gear, we put BTO in it, and we put um, a, a maple leaf in there to show we're Canadian. And that becomes the BTO, backward turn overdrive trademark around the world, an overdrive gear with BTO in the middle. But that picture and the real gear is on the back of BTO 1. And didn't that gear actually end up in your home recording studio? Yeah, BTO got so um, well, famous or notorious at the time. And I was on the road a lot. And I uh, started to get um, worried about my family and my, my house being broken into and things like that. So uh, we decided to move over the border, uh, not too far from Vancouver, cause, which is on the border. And it would be like a, an extra 10-minute drive to get into Vancouver if I had a gig or a meeting or to the airport. And so I'm building this really nice big house down there. And I'm building a room. And then quad sound was in, right? Mixing BTO and quadraphonic sound. I want a big room with four big speakers in the walls and all this stuff. And the room is so big, 
I, I want to put in like a wagon wheel kind of light, but a wagon wheel looks like a dime hanging from the ceiling. It's too small. And a light comes on my head, go get the BTO gear. It's eight feet across. So I drive back to this uh, uh, petrol gas station that, you know, had a, uh, in the field. And I say, um, that big wooden thing still there? And the guy says, yeah, we don't want that thing. I said, well, can I haul it away? And he said, yeah, can you get it out of here? It's, it won't fit in anything. It's gigantic. And I said, well, I'll, I'll get a trailer. So I get a trailer and I tie it to the trailer. I drive it over to my house. Um, I, I tell the, the contractor building my house, I want to make this a light. And he goes, are you kidding? It weighs like 600 pounds. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, let's get some tow truck chain. I went to an Army Navy surplus and bought little sockets, which we screwed on there and put in light bulbs. And, and uh, it was so heavy and so big that it wouldn't go through the door of my house. So we put a skylight in the ceiling. I have a picture of this. And they got a gigantic crane to lift it up and lower this gigantic gear, wooden gear, through the ceiling. And then they put the glass window on my skylight. And then they hung that in the ceiling. And I, I went to visit this house. I mean, last Christmas with my kids who grew up there but forgot it because we, we left it in 1980. We moved out of there because of a divorce. Went back to the house. The gear is still there. I've got pictures of it. And they, they love the gear. There's like nothing like it in the world. There's an old wood that they used to make real gears from. This was a template that they would make a mold from and that mold they pour in metal and make a big metal gear and this was used in these sawmills in British Columbia because these big gears would turn these uh, saws that would you know cut the logs into um, planks and, and, and boards and stuff. Now onto your uh, big breakthrough onto the global arena. Now this may not have ever happened had it not been for the ear of a record company executive. Now, he'd sat and listened to your new album. He liked it, but he didn't actually hear any hits. Then somebody rocked up with uh, an idea that would change your life and your fortunes. You're right. Uh, I produced the band, so I always had a work song that would be a, kind of a jam session. So I would, uh, we'd record it. I'd go in and listen with the engineer and say, we need to change the bass sound. Let's move the mic. Let's try a different mic. Let's tighten up the drum heads. Let's move my guitar amp. Let's put a, an extension of the guitar in the in the bathroom so we got a big echo on it. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And so we had this work track. And I had a brother. And I'm the oldest of four boys. And growing up with three brothers is really wonderful. It's like your own little Cub Scout clan. And I was the oldest one. And we would always play pranks and tease each other. So my, my, one of my younger brothers stuttered. So I thought, I'm going to take this work track and stutter over it and mix only one version of it on a cassette and sent it to my brother at the ultimate na 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 teasing thing. <laughs> so this only exists on cassette. We've done the album, the album is sequenced. Charlie Fatch, who's the head guy at Mercury, who signed us to Mercury Records. Uh, he also signed Rod Stewart and discovered Maggie May as a, as, a, as a put it on as a gift to Rod Stewart to talk him into releasing a single because Rod didn't want to release a single. So Charlie comes to hear the album and he hears the whole album. He goes, wow, I like Rolling Down the Highway. I love the album title, Not Fragile, because it's against the Yes album, which was called Fragile, World Breaking Apart, and yours is a box full of overdrive gears saying, your music is not fragile, it's heavy, and you're, you're starting to think you're heavy rock or heavy metal or something, because you've got all these metal gears in this box. And, um, but I don't hear a single on the album. And the engineer says, play him the throwaway track. And Charlie says, is there another song? And I said, well, no, we don't, it's not mixed. It's a throwaway song. I, I mixed one version on a cassette to tease my brother. The guitar is not even in tune. I hadn't tuned up yet. And um, he said, let me hear it. So we play in the cassette and he goes nuts. He jumps out of the chair and he says, that's a hit record. Put it on the album. I said, we know we, we've already got our eight songs. Then in classic rock, 
each song is four and a half minutes. You have four on a side and it adds to about 21, 22 minutes. You can't put any more on vinyl or you lose your level and you want your records to be loved. So Charlie says, let's get the four longest songs, recreate a side A and put them in a sequence and we'll get the five, we'll add this in and we'll take the five lesser short or shorter songs, put them on side B. So we do that. That's the first BTO album with an extra song. It's the ninth song. And then it comes out and he calls me and says, we're releasing it as a single. And I say, you can't do that. It's embarrassing. I hear it on the radio and I turned it down. <laughs> I only sang it once. I don't know what I'm singing. I never repeat anything except the baby, but it's all you knows and yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I'm, there's bad Van Morrison impressions in there. I'm doing sha-la-la-la like, like brown-eyed girl. And I'm just goofing around. It's not even a real song. And he says, it's charming. And believe me, I discovered Hey Baby for Bruce Chanel. I talked Rod Stewart and Erwin Steinberg into putting Maggie May on the B-side of Reason to Believe. That's a Rod Stewart hit forever. He'll be doing that song every day of his life. And believe me, you'll be doing Ain't Seen Nothing Yet every day of your life. It'll be a career song. I'm putting it out as a single. I'm overriding you as the producer. I'm your boss. I'm the head of A&R. We're putting it out as a single. And it went to number one in like 22 countries. It was immortalized by Harry Enfield with Smashy and Nike for like seven, <laughs> seven or eight years on, on British television. That's and right, Mr. Batman, Mr. Mr. Turner, and Mr. Overdrive. Yeah, and last year, we get a, a request from Prince Harry for me to get back together because he's doing the Invictus Games in Toronto, and he wants us to play and do You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet because he grew up hearing this song wherever he grew up in Buckingham <laughs> Palace or something, and it's his favorite one of his favorite songs. So Turner and I get together and we close the Invictus Games and ahead of us, I mean, who's opening the show for us is Kelly Clarkson, then Brian Adams, then Bruce Springsteen. And then the headlines are, we were stunned, Bachman and Turner, Overdrive doing You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet and a bunch of our other songs. It was a real thrill of a lifetime. Now, there was uh, a lot of people who actually used to try and guess what the lyrics to that song were all about. And there were some pretty wild guesses at the time as well. But there was actually nothing salacious about them at all, was there? Not really. Uh, in fact, um, the woman I wrote these eyes for, who, who was my first wife, I ended up marrying her. And my son, we had a son, Tal. You maybe heard his hit, She's yeah, Alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My son, Tal, is now in my band playing with me. And he's wonderful to be... In the, in the road with your band. Um, his mother was very, very beautiful. And I met her in like in, in Regina after Britton Cummings joined the band. So I met her in 1966. We got married then, just before England. And actually, Tal was, Tal was given birth to <laughs> when I got back from England after that trip. <laughs> and so he was born like August, the, August a year, uh, eight, nine months later. Uh, she had these beautiful eyes. And she, at the time, was a mixture of Sophia Loren and Gina Lola Brigida and very buxom, and it was Miss Regina Rough Rider, because every football team had, you know, a beauty pageant, and the most beautiful one would be the, represent the football team. And so she was really gorgeous, and she, she had these really nice eyes, and so the song was a little bit about her. She looked at me with her big brown eyes and said, you ain't seen nothing yet, but the song was really about nothing or nobody, and all I wanted to do was make something rhyme. I was copying, uh, literally copying Dave Mason's Only You Know and I Know, that nice jangling rhythm, and I would always try to get a nice guitar rhythm sound for the verses and then a real heavy sound for the choruses. And that was like a lot of BTO. It was a nice jangling kind of rhythm guitar verse and then a real heavy shovel in your face, you know, sledgehammer in your forehead, hook behind a guitar hook. And that's what that song was based around. And um, then, like I said, I just stuttered over to tease my brother. And it's, it's really about nobody or nothing. 
just that some girl looking at you sing, saying those words. Since then, I've seen T-shirts, women's panties, <laughs> with, with Yasni and the crotch at the waistband saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Like, yeah. And that became a word here, Yasni, right? And my set list, like if you're looking at Queen, it's Bow Rap. Mine is Yasni. It's like, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, and so that became, like I said, that became the hit song. And it's, um, I, I still enjoy doing it to this day. It's really a murder to lip sync because I don't know what I'm saying and nothing said <laughs> in the same place at any time. But the audience loves it. Now, that was good. But the pivotal moment for you was to come. Now, this song was Sony Music's most licensed track ever. And off the cuff, I found 16 cover versions of it. It was used in two documentaries, eight movies, 11 TV series. It was also used to record the largest guitar jam in history back in 1994 with 1,322 players playing it. And it's been used in so many ad campaigns. You couldn't actually list them because we don't have time. And Hillary Clinton used it during her election campaign. I refer, of course, to taking care of business. Now, is that your most satisfying creation? It is, because I co-wrote it with myself. I don't mind sharing the money with myself as a co-writer. <laughs> it started in the late 70s. I'm sorry, in the late 60s uh, in New York City. The Beatles had a paperback writer. And I'm trying to write a song like Paperback Writer. And Paperback Writer is a copy of Johnny B. Good, The Day in the Life of a Guy. Rather than saying, love, love me, do, or these eyes cry every night, I want to write about a guy like the Beatles wrote about their guy who wrote novels. And Chuck Berry wrote about the kid who lived in a cabin made of earth and wood named Johnny B. Good. So, and, and I'm recording at Scepter Studios. Florence Greenberg was a wonderful, smart Jewish lady who owned Scepter Records. She co-managed Dionne Warwick. She managed the Shirelles. She wrote Soldier Boy for the Shirelles. She owned Scepter Records. She's the one who got Backrack and David there and, and uh, Dionne Warwick together and, and invited Ashford and Simpson to come in every Friday and play hooky from school and pitch songs. And her son, Stanley Greenberg, was the engineer at Scepter Records. So he engineered our records and a lot of Dionne Warwick's records are demos for Backrack and David. And Stanley Greenberg was blind. And it amazed me how this blind guy, who basically they have great ears, right, uh, could mix the sound. And Stanley came to work every day wearing a white collar, a button-down collar, a tweed tie, a tweed jacket with leather patches on the elbows, tweed pants, you know, we're talking wool tweed here, and brogue shoes. And this Stylish is August, man. August <laughs> in, in New York. And it's like 95 <laughs> above, 95 humidity. We're all wearing ripped T-shirts and cut off jeans and flip-flops, Stanley comes every day wearing tweed from head to toe. I say, Stanley, why are, you, why are you dressed this way? He said, I want to look like George Martin. He's the greatest producer in the world. I go, yeah, Stanley, you look, look like George. Take off the damn jacket. You're making me hot. Look at you. So Stanley, I said, I want to write a song about you, Stanley. You come to work every day wearing this white collar, and I'm going to copy paperback writer. I'm going to call the song White Collar Worker. And he goes, wow, a song about me? And I go, yeah. Why do you leave the studio every day at 10 o'clock? Well, I, I, I take the train. I said, don't you live downtown here? Studios on West 54th, right downtown New York City. And uh, he said, no, I take the train home. I said, well, can I come with you? Uh, do you take a taxi? He said, no, I walk. I go, you walk to where? He said, Grand Central Station. So how do you walk there? He said, I count steps. So I'm amazed that I've never had the experience before 
with a, with a visually impaired person, with a blind guy. Look, can I come with you? I need some ideas to write the song. He says, sure. So at 10 o'clock, he walks out the door. He's got a white cane, and he's counting. I go, what are you doing? He says, I count 856 steps this way. Then I hear a little tweeting, and I know I'm at an intersection, because you know, when you're blind, you hear this little tweet, you know you can walk, you know it's a green light. And I walk across the street, then I walk 300 feet that way, 300 steps, and then at 100 that way, and I'm at Grand Central. So I'm with them, and we end up at Grand Central Station. Except it's quarter after 10 at night. The streets are empty. Everybody's in the theaters, or they're in Madison Square Garden. In a half an hour, it's going to be pandemonium in the streets. Everyone's out of the theaters. They're trying to get coffee and dessert, or they're out of Madison Square Garden. So we get, to, we get to Grand Central. It's totally empty. He's getting on the train. And I say, well, goodbye, Stanley. There's nothing to write about. I'm going to sing White Collar Worker, and then there's this empty street. There's nothing here. When do you come in? When do you come in in the morning? He said, I take the 815 into the city. And I go, wow. Well, I'll meet you at, when did the 815 get here? He said, about quarter to nine. So I go there about quarter to nine. I meet the 815, and that's the first lines. Uh, when, he, when he arrives there, I'm waiting for him, and all the, there's, the train is full of women. And they're all doing their makeup and their hair and lipstick, and they're getting off the train. So they get up in the morning from the alarm clock's morning and take the 815 into the city. There's a whistle up above. When you arrive, a whistle goes off. You know the 815's arrived, and the girls are trying to look pretty. If your train's on time, you can get to work by 9. So I'm saying to Stanley, so you walk to Scepter Records? He says, yeah, I get there by 9. I start my slaving <laughs> job to get my pay, and I go, holy cow, he's written the song. So I do that whole verse. The verses are the same, but except when it gets to my hook. I stupidly go, white collar worker, just like paperback writer. And everybody I play the songs for says, great, great lyrics in your verses. They're your Chuck Berry. They're your Beatle lyrics. You got to change the hook because you're going to get sued by Lennon McCartney. It's a dead, a dead copy of the paperback writer's thing. And so that never makes it on the next Guess Who album with Burton Cummings with Wheatfield Soul that has these eyes. It never makes it on the next album, which has Laughing and Undone. It never makes it on the next album, which is American Woman in No Time. I leave the band. I pitch it for one. The band doesn't want to do it because of the white-collar worker part. I pitch it for Brave Belt 2. Fred Turner doesn't want to do it because of the same part. We're recording Brave Belt 3, which becomes BTO1. It never gets on there. And just as we're about to record BTO2, and we're getting a lot of airplay on BTO1, and that's the day you didn't put out singles. You just put out album cuts. You want to be like Zeppelin or yes, and just have really long cuts because FM radio is playing four and five minute songs. I'm driving to the gig one night. I'm driving over the bridge to go to North Vancouver. A DJ comes on the air and he says, hi, this is Daryl B on CFUN Radio, and we're taking care of business. And I go, wow, what a great song title. That says so much, those, that, those words. And I get to the gig, and I've already pitched White Collar Worker to the band successively for two years, and they passed on it. We get to the gig that night, and now this is a Saturday night. We've been playing since Monday, so we're doing six nights a week, five 50-minute sets a night, and we get to Saturday night, the last set, and Fred Turner says, I can't sing anymore. you got to sing the last set. So he's telling me he's lost his voice. He can't sing anymore, and I've got to sing the last set. I was not really a singer. I sang the high part in no time. I would answer Burton in, 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 um, in No Sugar Tonight. I gang sang on a lot of the other BTO songs, and suddenly I've got to sing the last song, the last set. And the club owner's going, you got to do some rockin' songs, you got to get them up dancing, because in a rock and roll club, they're selling beer. They turn up the heat, they give you free pretzels and popcorn, they're salty, you get thirsty, you buy more beer. 
I can't get them up singing. I do Bob Dylan, She Belongs to Me, because Bob Dylan's not a great singer, and neither am I, so I do that song, Nobody's Dancing. Carlos Santana had a song called Oye Como. I know no Spanish. My mother's Ukrainian. I'm going up, and I say, okay, I'm going to do Oye Como Va, and the band goes, well, you don't know it. I say, just follow me. So I do Oye Como Va. Everyone's up dancing because it's a big radio hit at the time. I don't know any Spanish, and I'm singing Oye Como Va pierogies. Everybody's laughing. And the next line is Gino Bumoza. I'm doing it phonetically, Holopchi, which is Ukrainian food. And everybody who's there in, in, in Vancouver is like me. They're like Ukrainians. They know what a pierogi is or kanish or whatever. And so they're laughing, and we're having a great time. And, and they're all up dancing. The club owner's giving me the OK sign, and he's giving me the spinning sign, which they do on TV, which means keep it rolling. It's good. And he's giving me the circle sign with his finger. Keep it going. And I'm wondering, well, the song's going to end soon. I run out of Carlos's great licks. What can I do? And a light bulb comes on the other side of my brain, because the other one side of my brain is playing Oye Como Va. The light bulb comes on and goes, this is your big chance for white-collar workers. The band are your hostage. They cannot say no. So why don't you take what Daryl B. just said on the radio, taking care of business, and get rid of your white-collar worker thing and slam the two together, and it'll work. It'll work. And it's like an angel is telling me, play this riff and you'll write American Woman. Put these two bits of the song together, you'll be writing a, a, an anthem of your own. Do this right now. So I finish Oye Como Va, which goes, dun, 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 dun. hey, and we all yell the hey, and I turn around and say, follow me three chords. So my first white collar worker had maybe 12 chords. It was very, very jazzy. It was like, you know, like a Sting song or a Paul Simon song, and full of jazz chords. And so all I, I can't tell the band the chords, so I say, and I go back to Louie Louie, right? Do, three, do these three chords over and over. And I start, and I have to change my melody a little bit. I have to bend the notes because I'm only doing three chords. And so I bend my notes a little, and I sing my lyrics to White Collar Worker. And when it gets to the hook, I don't sing White Collar Worker. I, it's smoothly. I just sing Taking Care of Business. And it fits. And I sing it four times. And I look at the band, and when it comes around again, they sing it with me, and I answer them every day, Taking Care of Business, every way, taking care of business, it's all mine, taking care of business and working over time. And I go, oh my God, thank you. Thank you, angels <laughs> of song who sent me this thing. <laughs> and we do the song for a half an hour and everyone's up dancing. And every time we stop, they sing taking care of business. And they sent this electricity in the air similar to Reading American Woman like almost 10 years before that or eight years before that. And um, we keep doing the song. My brother keeps the kick drum going. We go to record the song down in Seattle, because all the Vancouver studios are full. And there's a brand new studio in Seattle, started by Lester B. Smith, who owned six radio stations, and Danny Kaye, the actor. So it's called Kay Smith Studios. So we go down there for the opening. Danny Kaye's there, he's a proud kid. His mother makes all Jewish conditions for everybody for the opening. We're in Studio A, Steve Miller's in Studio B doing why, um, uh, Fly Like an Eagle album, and War is in Studio C doing their Why Can't We Be Friends album. So there's three bands on the verge of breaking real big there in the studios. And I record taking care of business, and there's a knock at the door of the studio. And I open the door, and there's a guy standing there in an army fatigue uh, outfit from head to toe and an army hat on, a big frizzy black beard and frizzy black hair, and he's holding three pizzas. We've already recorded the song. And he says, you guys order the pizza? I said, no, we're going home. We've been here since 10 in the morning. It's now 1 in the morning. We've almost been there like 24 hours. We're going home to sleep. Try down. Tried Studio B, asked for Steve, and Studio C, asked for Jerry. They probably ordered the pizza. 
So he comes back a few minutes later. We're putting on our jackets. We're about to leave. And he says, uh, the pizza's gone. And I'm a piano player. I really don't deliver pizza all the time. Just at the end of the month when I can't pay my rent. And I've been listening to the song, Taking Care of Business, through the door. It sounds great. Can I play piano on it? And I say, what? We're not a piano band. And I know little Richard and Elton John and Dr. John. I could get them to play piano. He said, yeah, but they're not here. I'm here right now. Can you give me a break? Just give me a shot. And I figure, who am I not to give a guy a shot? So I say, okay. We throw a mic in the piano. The piano's not even tuned because you usually have a piano tuner when you're recording with a piano. We're not recording with a piano. So we throw a mic in the piano. It's out of tune, covered with a blanket. I say to the guy, you have one take because we're going home. I don't even pay attention to it. The engineer pushes record. He records the guy. I say, thanks very much. We're going home to sleep. We're going to listen to it the next day. I think I'm going to erase it the next day. Charlie Fatchflies, and the same guy who discovered he seen nothing yet. Let me hear the album. I said, you're here a day early. You're supposed to come tomorrow. He said, no, I'm, I'm on my way to L.A. to play the album. We're very excited to get your new album. And um, so I say to the engineer, okay, when you play Taking Care of Business, do not play the piano track. We hadn't even heard it back. But halfway through the song, he pushes up the volume on the piano. In comes the piano. And Charlie, again, jumps out of his seat and goes, what is that? You guys with a piano? And I go, well, Yeah. Let me hear the whole thing, because he only heard the back half of the song. So we back it up, we play him the whole song, and he goes, that's amazing. You, this will get you Elton John real estate. And I say, what does that mean? He said, Elton John owns AM radio and FM radio. The guy is everywhere because of his piano. All you other guys are guitar, bass, and drums. You and ZZ Top and the Doobie Brothers and Peter Frampton, you're all guitars, bass, and drums. Elton owns AM and FM. You having a piano, you're going to get Elton John real estate. Put it on the album. I said, well, okay, we'll leave the piano on. He says, who's playing the piano? I say, I don't know, a pizza delivery guy. He says, you're kidding. I said, no, a guy delivered pizza here. He has to play the piano. I have no idea who he was. He said, well, we got to find this guy. Is he in the union? I said, I, I don't know. He delivered pizza. So he's saying, uh, well, find out. So I go down the hall. I knock on the door. Steve Miller, hey, Steve, where'd you get the pizza from? He goes, we didn't get pizza. Try war. So I go down the as it turns out, somebody got the pizza, but the studio has been cleaned up. Nobody knows where the pizza came from. So I go to the front desk to the woman who's you know, the receptionist and say, okay, here's the yellow pages. Will you start at Antonio's? I'll go halfway through and start at Mario's. <laughs> we'll phone every Italian place or pizza place within like three blocks of the studio. And we have to, I have to find this guy who looks kind of like Fidel Castro. He's wearing an army suit with a big black frizzy beard. So we're phoning up restaurants saying, hi, do you have a pizza delivery guy that looks like Fidel Castro? So if you've ever seen The Simpsons, when they phone Moe's Bar, and they say, you know, Bart will phone Moe's Bar and say, hi, can I speak to Seymour Hare? And the guy will go slam and he slam the phone down because you're asking for a joke name. So we're phoning these places and we're asking for a guy that looks like Fidel Castro. And we're getting the, thing, the phone slammed down. Finally, I get lucky on the third phone call. And they say, yeah, you mean, the, you mean the piano player guy? Yeah, he looks like Fidel. He's got a big frizzy beard. And he always wears an army sh jacket and stuff. I said, can you tell me his name? They said, no, we don't give employees names over the phone. I said, but we found the guy. When does he start work? Six o'clock. Send him down. We need to meet the guy. Do you want a pizza? Yeah, we don't care. Just send the guy down. So he comes down. His name was Norman Durkee. That's the piano and taking care of business. And when he was doing the track, I said to him, look, I don't know what I want. So play a bit of Elton John, play a bit of Dr. John, play a bit of Little Richard. And that when you listen to the piano and taking care of business, the first verse is very Dr. John, very New Orleans. 
Then the second verse is Elton John with more shots like honky, honky cat and things. And then the little Richard stuff comes in. And that's the piano that's on there. And that guy, Norman Durkee, went on to be Bette Midler's musical director on one of her North American tours. And when I toured the world with Ringo Starr All-Star Band, we ended in 95 at, uh, in, in Hollywood. And the pianist for the L.A. Philharmonic Orchestra was the same guy, Norman Durkee. The pizza guy is a great story, and this has been the stuff of urban legend for years and years. But there's another one which needs a, a little bit of corroboration here. Did Elvis actually record a version? And if so, did you ever hear it? Well, here's the thing. Um, I told you I played violin, and then I saw Elvis on TV, and that made me switch to guitar, because I was said, that's called Elvis, that's called the guitar, and that's called rock and roll, and I said I want to do that. I was sick of playing Royal Conservatory violin, of playing all the notes on the page, and a certain way, and I like the wildness of rock and roll. Um, many years after that, I saw an HBO special with Priscilla Presley, with all clips of Elvis, and they asked her about the song. And she said, well, we were driving to the L.A. airport to fly back to Memphis, and Elvis heard a song on the radio called Taking Care of Business by a Canadian band. She didn't name us, but obviously it was us. And he said, that's what I want as my motto, Taking Care of Business. We'll be the TCB band, Lightning Bolt. When I say I want something, TCB, I mean right away, Take Care of Business. And that became his logo. It's on his tombstone, which is amazing. And then he was playing Vegas, and I met with his, somebody in his band. And his, his bass player, Jerry, became Carl Wilson's manager. And I toured with the Beach Boys for a lot and wrote a lot of songs with Carl Wilson for their keep the summer alive album and he told me that somewhere in one of the rehearsals Elvis recorded <clears throat> excuse me Elvis recorded taking care of business so somewhere in the archives of him live with James Burden on guitar who's one of my idols because he backed Rick Nelson and all those great guitar solos and so it's there in the Elvis archives and now they're digging through the Elvis archives I know they're going to be doing an Elvis um what's called Avatar, we, they're, doing a, they're doing an ABBA Avatar performance, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're yeah. creating an Elvis yeah, yeah, one, yeah. and they're probably going to do a Led Zeppelin one with a with uh, John Bonham. I mean, this is the great new thing about the new technology. We're going to see these guys again. We're going to see Elvis again. Well, Roy Orbison and Buddy Holly are doing a co-headlining tour, and Frank Zappa are also doing hologram tours this year. Yeah, yeah. So everybody's kind of doing that. And it's not weird anymore. Like, it used to be weird when you played Vegas because, oh, you're selling out. Now everybody plays Vegas or casinos because they spend money and you've got the best sound system and the best dressing rooms. The dressing rooms aren't toilets anymore. They're beautiful. <laughs> so the whole business has changed. So to play a casino now, in the old days, when I'd write a song and they'd say, can we use your song for a commercial? I'd go, yes, but as long as it's not promoting beer or alcohol or, or cigarettes, I'm not into that. So you can use it for anything else. I'd have guys saying to me, oh, you're selling out, man. I'd say, look, I write a song because it's given to me by God or some angel or, or I steal it from somewhere and change it enough. But it's, it's a gift. And, and I really write songs to make money. So if it's making money for a legitimate thing that I believe in, I have to use the product myself. And I'm not promoting cigarettes or, or, or drinking yeah, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, then yeah. I believe in earning that money. Those guys who put me down for years are now all doing it because there's no other way to get income because all the music's free unless it's licensed for a commercial. So I'm hearing Neil Young stuff. I mean, I must hear 10 songs a day of Queen doing, I want it all, I want it now. And you know what I mean? Everybody's I putting this stuff in commercials and movies. And that's the new paradigm for doing business. And so I'm glad I was ahead of that curve. And when I turned down a million dollars from a beer company to use taking care of business for their beer, and everybody said, you're insane. Because this is way back 20 years ago. A million dollars was a million dollars back then. 
a, a million a year. I turned it down and said, I don't want to promote beer. And um, I said, something else will come. And then three months later, along comes Office Depot, which is the perfect marriage of my song. You're buying supplies for your office and for school, and you're taking care of business, and we're selling paper and pencils and computers. And that's been going on for 25 years. It's been a great marriage. Now, at this point in your career, talking about insane workloads, between 73 and 77 at your peak, you're playing 300 nights per year, plus the five albums you did in that time, and 18 singles. All five albums achieved a minimum of gold status. How on earth did you survive that with your sanity still relatively intact? Uh, I survived it barely, but my marriage didn't, and most rock and roll marriages don't, because like an athlete or an actor, when you're hot, you're hot, and you've got to go out and make it, because three years later, you're going to be a nobody, just like when you started. And I was determined to make it after the guess who. Everybody said I could never make it in this business being straight. And I was determined, uh, really determined, to make it straight. My plan B was to stick to plan A, which is to go out and work, work. This was before there was MTV or anything. You had to basically go and work and play and work and play. And we would do like 300 gigs a year. We would take maybe 10 days off every couple of months. Uh, and in that 10 days off, we'd record an album in five days, and I would go and have five days with my wife and kids. And um, like I said, it takes a toll on your marriage um, and your kids. So I'm very lucky today. My daughter now helps with my social media. My son Tal is in my band. I'm very close to my kids. They understand the business, and they know that they're married. They understand that daddy has to go away to work, and my going away to work was Air Canada and going somewhere and playing, where the other guy leaves house at 8 at night. Eight in the morning, kids home at eight at night, maybe kisses the kids, and they go to bed. Kids go to bed at 8.30, so you hardly see your dad anyways. When yeah. I'd be home from a tour, I would take Tal and Lorelai and Bannatine, all my kids, wherever I went, into town, shopping, uh, meeting my accountant, meeting my lawyer, hanging out with Neil Young, hanging out with Eddie Van Halen. They called Neil Uncle Neil and Eddie's Uncle Eddie, you know what I mean? And like, yeah. I'm on tour yeah. with these guys, and they're coming to the... So now they understand why I do what I, what I did, what I did, and... But I've got to tell you, and I tell everybody this, how do, we, how do we make it in show business? I said, get ready for a really, really lonely life. Because, and it's in a lot of my songs. When the music's over and everyone goes home with the person they came with or, or goes back to somebody they love, to the warm bed and the fireside and waking up together and making love that night, I'm going home to a tour bus or an empty hotel room and getting up at 3 in the morning to make the next gig. And it's an endless train of... What you think is glamour is not glamour. Imagine being mm. on a family vacation for two weeks, which most families do, and it's horrific because it rains every night, you get flat tires. When you're on tour <laughs> for 90 days, 90 days it rains every night, you have a sore throat, you have a, your back's out of joint because of a bad bed, you're not eating proper food, you're feeling crappy, and everybody who pays their 10 bucks or 100 bucks wants you to be 100% perfect and hit every note in pitch, and give them a great show. And you go out there and you bust your tail to give them a great show. And when it's all done, after the end of a tour, you basically collapse. You fall into bed, you need a Cairo, you need massage. That's why a lot of people now get hooked on these drugs and opiates. And I'm not a druggie, so basically in every town of the world, every city, London, Paris, Germany, Toronto, Vancouver, New York, I've got a chiropractor and a masseuse. That's my pit crew to keep me going. I'm like a race car. Uh, but a vintage race car, <laughs> and I need these pit stops, literally, every every single city. And that's what keeps me going. 
Well, the inevitable was to follow, of course. Randy left the BTO and that brought us almost to a close of the 1970s. Now, we'll have more with Randy and his post-BTO career later on this year. In the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this two-part special celebrating the life in music of Randy Buckman. And remember, the biopic Buckman, which is a very good documentary, by the way, or as uh, Rob Reiner would say, rockumentary, is out on iTunes and Netflix now. I will be back later this month with the April edition of the Classic Rock Podcast. In the meantime, I'll leave you with a taster of Buckman the movie. From me, Tim Cable. Bye-bye. I just, I hear Randy. When I see him, I hear him. And I feel him. Think of all the hits that Randy Bachman has written. I would watch him play, and I'm like, I want to I wanna do that. He would literally take apart notes and put other notes in that would never belong in rock and roll. He was an unusual guy at an unusual time in an unusual place. When you find something that early in life that becomes a very early passion, you lose your inhibition. His strength is his weakness. And whoever was in his way better move because he was going. I remember Randy coming in and he's saying, it's happening. And you start, you start thinking it's going to go on forever. And it isn't going to go on forever. A professional musician who's been professional for a long time, it's rare. Often it's said the, the worst in your life brings out the best in your guitar playing. But I think you can also be very, very happy and very content and still play interesting, great, amazing things. The world changes. Your music kind of changes. But for some of us, it just keeps on getting better. But there's this little light glimmering, and somehow that balances the 20 hours of crap you go through. You're in your dreamland. Would you let it fly?